All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the gun control announcement yesterday by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. In the aftermath of the Texas school shootings, Trudeau did signal that tougher gun laws were on the way here in Canada. But I think this one caught a lot of people by surprise yesterday. A handgun freeze in Canada announced yesterday by Trudeau. Got a great guest standing by on this first. Let's have a listen to what Justin Trudeau had to say yesterday. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Yeah, we're capping the market for handguns. This will be legislation in front of the House of Commons. And I'm already getting some emails from listeners this morning. And I knew this would happen. There are reports of lineups outside of gun stores in Canada now as people rush to buy a gun, especially a handgun before this freeze kicks in. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Alan Harding. Alan is a four-time national champion competitive pistol shooter in Canada. He is hoping to represent Canada at the Olympic Games in pistol shooting. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Alan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, what went through your mind, Alan, when you heard about this uh, handgun freeze yesterday? Uh, the first thing is just how, how is this going to affect me? I mean, I'm, yeah. uh, a lot of people don't realize that, uh, especially in Canada, that uh, the target shooting is an Olympic sport. It has been since 1896. Uh, and uh, it's, we use restricted handguns uh, as part of that for, for the 25-meter events. Um, we've, you know, we've got a lot of success in Canada with gold medals, 84 and the Tom. Like there's, there's a lot of um, uh, great shooters in Canada that uh, this, this will affect. Yeah. How many handguns do you own? Oh, I don't really like to say, but... <laughs> oh, give me a ball, bar, ballpark. <laughs> I just, I've probably got a half dozen or so. And then there's like yeah. four four or five that are that are competitive ones. Yeah, and it sounds like from what Trudeau announced yesterday that this freeze would not affect existing handguns in the country. So it's not like they're going to come and take your handguns away, but you would not be allowed to buy any new ones, it sounds like, or sell the ones that you have. Correct. Well, which is correct, which is a problem because the you know my my competitive ones are all imported, right? I'm, I'm I'm using ones from my current one is from Italy, and it's like those are special uh, competition handguns that that, are, that I use. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Like right now, the laws in Canada for handguns, handguns are a restricted weapon in our country, and you really can't do anything with them except use them for target shooting, right? Like you, all you can do is take them to a range. And, and that's, that's, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. That's that's basically it. I mean, we we've got really strict laws uh, about gun ownership already in Canada. Uh, I mean, I travel with them, and it's like the amount of paperwork that I have to do, even just getting, you know, from my house to the airport and and, and beyond, is 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 already pretty extensive. Um, so I, I'm not sure how this helps, other than just to definitely will kill my sport because there's no way new shooters can even start. Yeah, that's what I was just wondering about, too. Like, for someone like yourself, who it sounds like maybe you will be grandfathered in here, you will be allowed to retain the handguns that you have now, you won't be able to get new ones. So, I don't know, maybe you would be able to continue to compete in your sport, but certainly it, it would threaten the ability of someone else to get into this sport in the future, would it not? Absolutely. It's, it's already yeah. really difficult to do, um, uh, as is, you know, to, to get introduced into the sport. You know, there's a lot of people that, that shoot at local clubs, uh, but to actually get to a competitive level, uh, if, you, if you're unable to uh, you know, test out different equipment, buy different equipment, it's, it's going to make it really difficult. You've got to wait and uh, either, well, I actually don't even know how you would do it. It's yes. impossible. Speaking to Alan Harding, four-time pistol shooting champion in Canada, hoping to represent Canada at the future Olympic Games. What are you hearing from your your fellow participants in shooting sports? How are they reacting to this announcement? 
Uh, frustrated. Uh, that's, that seems to be the, the big sort of emotion that I can see from, uh, from, from my peers and teammates and things. It's like, uh, I, I don't know. Even, I'm super frustrated. I just can't believe it because it's like, what does this do? And it's always in the wake of something uh, tragic that happens. And it's, uh, I, I don't know how it, how it will improve anything. If anything, the, you know, the, the black market and other things are going to still exist and thrive. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I'm already hearing from listeners saying that people are rushing to buy a handgun now. Lineups at gun stores. Does that surprise you? It, uh, it doesn't at all. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll probably do it on myself. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, because it, this hasn't kicked in yet. It's got to go in front of the House of Commons first before before it's passed. Alan, let me ask you this. For listeners right now who are listening to this and saying, well, you know what? I support a handgun ban. Why does anybody need a handgun in Canada anyway? Like, what would you say to them? What do you What do you say to people who would support a ban like this or a freeze? You know what? I, I have talked to a lot of people that uh, about this, and it's usually uh, like city centers for sure. I can understand how how that could be. Uh, you know, something there's no there's barely any ranges around. But you get outside of Vancouver and Toronto, and there's a lot of people that enjoy shooting. Uh, and that's pretty much, you know, all of the other parts of Canada. And so there's, I don't know, it's uh, it's something where it's like some central pockets in cities where I, I could see uh, a handgun ban would would be something that would be a lot more support. But outside of that, I, I don't I don't hear it. Yeah, but for people who are wondering, like, well, why do you need a handgun anyway? Well, for you, it's it's a sport, right? It's it's your passion as a, as a sporting activity, right? That's right. Yes, yeah. I've, I've been doing it for uh, a lot of years now, and uh, I, I enjoy it. Yeah, how did you get? It, how did you get into it? Well, my brother got me into shooting a long, long time ago. I think we were kids, and uh, never really wanted to get into it. But he got me out to the rings, and I was just like, "Whoa, this is uh, a lot of fun!" Yeah, yeah. And you're a four-time national champion. What is the process to get to the Olympic Games in your sport? Uh, it's pretty extensive. We have to win quota spots just to get uh, our Canada into the to the Olympics. Uh, and that's a difficult journey too. I mean, it starts basically this year, uh, trying to go to, to World Cups, World Championships will be this fall in Egypt. Uh, so there's there's a lot of uh, competitions that happen along the way that, that give Canada opportunities to win quota spots. Egypt, like this is an international sport, right? Like, have you traveled outside of Canada to compete? Oh yeah, I've I've been all over the world uh, with, wow. with firearms uh, competing, and yeah, it's it's enjoyed by millions all over the place. Like Canada is so strict, uh, like they're strict on 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 ownership and everything. But you go outside of Canada and in some countries like South Korea, I can turn on the the news at night, and they've got shooting as part of the regular sports programs. Yeah, Alan, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Talking about the handgun freeze announced yesterday by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the government announcing that there would be some limited exemptions to the freeze. Businesses could allow to sell handguns to movie companies and museums like movie props. That would still be allowed. There would also be a category of exempted individuals including elite sports shooters who participate in the Olympics or Paralympic committees. That would appear to rule out uh, more casual people involved in sports shooting events at gun ranges. Lots of calls on this. Ryan in Cloverdale. Hi, Ryan. What do you think? Hi. Um, I think this is the absolute wrong direction we need to be headed in. Um, I own or I hold both my PAL and our PAL, so I can buy both non-restricted and restricted. And I damn sure as well jumped on the train and bought two handguns last night online. You bought, you bought two handguns last night? Uh, yep, immediately. Wow. I actually have been procrastinating because I actually have been set up for proper storage to abide by laws for proper storage. There are strict laws for storing a handgun at home. And I just haven't really, um, excuse the pun, pulled the trigger on a, on, on a purchase. And now, obviously, I'm going to because yeah. this freeze means I can never have one in my life if I don't get one now. Yeah, but no. I'm a law. I'm a law-abiding citizen, and our our laws are extremely strict. And this freeze only affects me and law-abiding citizens, not the true gun crime majority, which are the gangsters and the criminals. I would like to cite. And quote, police, Vancouver Police Chief Palmer in 2019, he heads the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. And he said Canada already has strong firearm regulations and no other law is required. 
There are okay, many Ryan, police people okay, who are not back this. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. See, as soon as I heard this announcement, I thought, you watch, there was going to be a rush on gun sales in Canada. So I'm not surprised. Like, there will be people just rushing to buy a handgun here before this freeze kicks in. And you heard Ryan say he bought, he bought two online last night. Jason in Chilliwack, hi. Hey, how's it going today? Good. What do you think? Um, well, I'm currently on the way to Siwash Sports in Chilliwack to pick up a gun with my wife. Um, I am a content creator in um, the industry. I do photography and air guns and stuff like that and firearms. Now, I also used to be Al Harding's roommate a long time ago. Uh, oh. we, used to live to- <laughs> we used to live together. He's a good, good man, and uh, I love to hear what he has to say. A four-time champion um, in the industry, and uh, this is going to hurt a lot of businesses. Um, you know, I know gun store, o- gun store owners that are now going to suffer because of this. They are no longer going to be able to sell that type of uh, product. For people yeah. like myself, will never be able to upgrade or change or do anything with a firearm. And none of these changes will make any difference to the gun crime in Canada because they're only targeting good people like me and my wife. What, and if, some, what, if, somebody, what if someone stole your guns and used them in a crime? I have them locked up in a 18-gun safe that's bolted to my cement floor. Try yeah. it. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they use all these tactics to convince the public that doesn't understand guns that yeah. we're the problem and we're not. Okay, Jason, and thank you. Thank- Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Let's uh, squeeze in some more calls here. Gurinder in Abbotsford. Hi. Hey, Mike. Love your show. Um, the guest that you had on, the Pistol Champion, like what percentage of Canadians, of the 38 million Canadians is that I represent? Uh, not too many. So the rest of us are moms and dads who are trying to protect our kids. I was around in 99 when Columbine happened, and back then you thought, wow, this is a one-off thing. It was some serious, horrible you know, carnage that happened in a school. How many times have they done this uh, in the U.S. since Columbine? I don't want that coming into the Canadian system. A lot of things are trickling down to us from the U.S. Um, there's mental health issues on the rise with kids. What about a Canadian kid getting a hold of their parent's handgun and bring it into class? If what Trudeau just did lowered the chances of my kid getting shot up, well, finally, thanks, Trudeau, for finally doing something right. Do you think he should go even further? Like, forget about a freeze, he should bring in an outright ban. The ban will be harder to implement. It's going to be hard oh. to get people to, you know, hand in their guns and rifles. But at least this is a way of keeping new guns from entering, new gang members and people involved in, you know, bad activities of getting a hold of these guns. Keep them off our streets. Keep them out of the, ki- of the kids' uh, schools. Sorry out of our hands like it's just protecting canadians finally okay. true has done something garinder uh, thank thank you very much for the call glad we're getting both sides of it dev on the line in vancouver hi dev go ahead oh hi um so i would like your last caller to keep a list of all the crimes committed after um this legislation is passed uh, and i'd like to state to your last caller criminals don't go to gun stores or buy them legally and fill out all these forms i am not a gun owner okay but this yeah. prime minister, by doing this, it's nothing but crass politics. And that, Mike, is what's really disappointing, is why not address the issue? This doesn't stop the guns. And you yourself, Mike, keep track of yourself. What goes on in Vancouver? Uh, the gangsters are not scared right now. All this has done is those people getting illegal handguns, boy, they just doubled and tripled their profits. Thank you for the call. Sean in North Van. Sean, you have 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hey, Mike, you know, there's a notion in Canada that uh, the only justification for owning a firearm is hunting or sport shooting. And the Liberals repeat it over and over and over because they know um, it's not true. Uh, Every government in the world equips its government officials, border guards, police, conservation bodyguards with handguns for the simple reason that a handgun in the right hands is the best tool to protect life on the planet okay all right thank you sean for the call i don't think anyone is disputing uh that a police officer will continue to have a sidearm under this uh this freeze but we'll see what happens now i am not surprised at all to hear callers 
calling in and saying they're, they're heading to the gun store right now. They're buying guns last night. All right, let's talk about the damning new report on sexual misconduct in the Canadian military now. Another one, the latest report on this massive problem. Thousands of victims of misconduct in the military have already come forward. More than 13,000 claimants in a clash action lawsuit settled by the government several years ago for $900 million. Despite that, sexual misconduct continues in the Canadian military. Now a brand new report issued yesterday by former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor, uh, again, bringing in more sweeping recommendations for reform. Let's have a listen to what she had to say yesterday. And the contribution of civilians should be enhanced throughout as a source of knowledgeable outside expertise. The CAF should let others do what they can do better, more efficiently, and concentrate on its operations. Imperfect as our civilian courts are, I think it will be better handled, it will have greater impact, more equity for victims, um, if all this is done in the civilian system. All right, Louise Arbor there, former Supreme Court Justice, talking about just one of her 48 recommendations in this report yesterday calling for civilian police and courts to handle sexual assault cases in the military. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Sam Samplonia. Sam is a military sexual trauma victim. She is an advocate for other victims of sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Sam, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. It's always a pleasure to talk to my old hometown. Thank you, Sam, for doing this. Can you uh, can you tell the listeners briefly about you know your own your own time in the Canadian military and, and briefly what happened to you? Oh, essentially, I joined in '81. Uh, I was all excited about uh, becoming a peacekeeper and traveling the world. I started out. Uh, they sent me my first posting was to a support unit that supported the airborne. And I was one of the first dozen females that were posted in because it was the 80s and they were starting to integrate females into the more male-dominated trades. And even some of the trades were still closed to females. So um, it was a bit of a culture shock for the people working there. They were always used to, you know, having just being the whole macho men kind of thing, you know, we're big and tough and and whatnot. So it wasn't exactly the environment that a little petite five foot two, uh, 18 year old uh, was expected to be able to excel in. And for the most part, most people were supportive and helpful, but there was one or two that were just not happy about women being integrated into that trade. And they made it quite clear, um, potentially, you know, love harassment, uh, sort of secret stuff, not in front of people, because that's why we hear a lot of people say, well, I've never seen that, or I don't remember that happening, or, you know, that never happened to me. And what people don't realize, I think, about uh, real sexual predators is they don't do things, obviously. The worst ones are actually very quiet about it. Um, There was one in particular that he used to follow me to the canteen on canteen break, all the time, and he just make sure he was just close enough behind me where I could hear him, but nobody else could. And it just looked like we were all walking to the canteen, but he'd basically tell me all the disgusting things that he wanted to do, and it was pretty gross, and, and basically made me very scared at work every day, but of course I had to be tough and give that persona of the tough little soldier, so it just... I recognize now through therapy how tra- traumatizing that was. Um, at the time, I was just like, well, if you want to hang out with the guys and do guy work, then you got to, you know, be like one of the guys. So it was a tough time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you try to come up with, uh, as as women, we all talk about, you know, the people to stay away from and, and you stay in pairs and you do all those things. But every once in a while, there's just that, odd time that you just you don't expect it happening I mean one time somebody offered me a ride home but you know he didn't take me home so that was uh, basically kidnapping but (laughs) you know not something that you could plan or expect so um, it was a tough time in the 80s 
Speaking to Sam Samplonius, she's a military sexual trauma victim and an advocate for other other victims. Now, how long were you in the military? I'm actually just taking my medical release, so it's been about a year now, but uh, hopefully the paperwork is done soon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, when you talk to, I mean, you're one of thousands of, of people who, thousands of victims, and many have bravely come forward to share their stories. Um, when other women have confided in you and in the treatment that they suffered, when they complained, when they tried to have it resolved, what would happen internally in the military? Because this is one of the the major recommendations in this report, is let's take these cases out of the military and bring and put it into a civil, uh, independent civil systems, independent oversight like what would happen when you do com- when you do complain internally? Absolutely, like that was like one of my we, we call it survivor regret. The people that had stuff happen to them, but they never told anybody. You know, you're always like, there's always that thought in your mind that well, maybe if I'd said something, you know, it would have been stopped sooner. Um, but you recognize as you're older that well, you, you felt powerless at the time, so there was reasons why you didn't. But you still feel guilty for years after. I mean, these things happened in the '80s and. I never did anything, but now as I work in advocacy and I talk with others that were in the same situation, but for some of them, they did speak up. I think in the 90s, after we had sharp training, a lot of people felt a little bit more comfortable about calling out bad behavior. And um, I hear from, you know, people in our group that that did put their complaints in or, or, you know, their concerns and and they were basically ostracized or drummed out even worse, or you're called a snitch, or you're not a team player, or how could you ruin someone's career like that? And, you know, it's like there, there was no belief there for victims. It was it was like everyone was incredulous, like how could a fellow military member, an honorable member, um, they wouldn't do such a thing. And there was just a lot of, there was no belief for victims, and that's why they didn't come forward. So... Now I feel a bit vindicated that I didn't because I probably wouldn't have been able to stay in. I wouldn't have been able to handle that type of treatment. But um, it's it's even worse when you still hear some people in our group now that are still serving. And they say yeah. some of the same microaggressions are still happening. Um, you, sure. I can see it's been better. I mean, it's not like the 80s. There's definitely a lot more awareness. There's definitely a lot more um, people like I have male friends that ask me, you know, like, is this appropriate, you know, or, or I did this, like, oh, I don't know, should I apologize? And, and really, we just try to tell people, you know, if we all just treat each other just as fellow members on a team, you know, like, don't look at gender, don't look at body type, is that person doing their job, then great, you know, yeah. and because this isn't a woman's issue, and that's some, something that I'm really proud of our group is that we've really... Um, been very adamant about the fact that it's, it just doesn't just happen to women, unfortunately. Yeah. And I didn't even realize how big a problem it was within the male population either. So I feel bad that in all these years that I was keeping an eye on my sisters in arms, I didn't think about, you know, checking in on my brothers. And typically it seems like in my informal statistical uh, observations, it seems like the people that were uh, hurt the most were the people that were, you know, they seemed like they were weaker. They seemed like right. they were more easily taken advantage of. So maybe they were younger. Maybe they were just, they didn't fit the pattern of what some of these macho, and it was always the really heavily macho guys, you know, the, like the army is for men. And, you know, like you guys don't belong here. Because there was lots of men that were absolutely wonderful guys to work with. And, you know, it's just unfortunate that there's, there's got to be those few in there that they just tarnish the whole system. Let me play a let me yeah. play a clip here for you, Sam, from uh, Canada's National Chief of the Defense Staff, uh, General Wayne Eyre, speaking uh, yesterday and responding to this report on sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. And then I'll get your thoughts. Here is Wayne Eyre. If our people can't feel safe, if uh, if they can't, if we can't attract and retain talent from all segments of Canadian society, we are going to fail Canada. Yeah, this is one of the the points I think that the Canadian military brass are realizing is that if they want to make the Canadian military an attractive option for people to join, they've got to fix this. But your thoughts? 
Absolutely. And and we also, as advocates, we tell them it's not just fixing it. You have to show people that we fixed it. Yeah. You know, so so we have to have people out there saying, so what have we done to fix it? So when we talk about the 48 recommendations that have been made, um, you know, there, there's, honestly, there is a lot of pessimism out there because if you read yeah. them, I actually reread the Deschamps report uh, yesterday as well, just to look at the you know, what was the same and what was different. And I didn't take notes quite yet because I've got to do that. But it just struck me that really it's the same things over again. And I know that the Justice Fish report, when I read that, when it came out, it was the same thing. It was like, well, they're all saying the same thing. So how many reports do we need before we actually start to do something? And I think I'm hopeful that this time this is hopefully the last report. I mean, it's it's very cautious optimism <laughs> um, because it's not just a matter of a will to do it. And this is what I tell people all the time. It's like, I believe that there is the will to change things. There's a lot of people that definitely want to make it a better place. There's also a lot of people like from an operational standpoint that recognize that we're not going to have a military if we can't, as you know, the general said, attract and retain and keep safe the people that want to come in and serve Canada. And and that's what I always tell people. Why can't we focus on that as people when we're working? Is focus on why did we join? We joined because we wanted to serve Canada. We wanted to protect the you know as much of the world as as we could. It, these are the thing that we all have in common besides the fact that we're all in uniform. And to you know to be racist or to be homophobic or to be uh, you know gender biased is just it's just not on. It's not a part of what we are striving to be right. as Canadian Armed Forces members. So I think getting that through, um, that that will is there. What I'm mainly concerned about is those things cost money. Yeah. And it's always, you know, it comes down to the money. Like there's these great recommendations. And, and yes, as Madame Arbor pointed out yesterday, there should be no oversight needed because if everything gets done as per what she has recommended, then Correct. everything will be better. Um, Sam, Sam, I want to thank you for your courage in speaking out and your advocacy. And I uh, want to thank you for your time here today. Uh, we'll see what happens from here. Thanks for coming on. We will. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Canadians getting ready to hit the road and travel again. The pent-up demand for travel is massive. People getting ready to travel to the United States, maybe beyond for business, for a vacay. Lots of people want to travel again. But what if you need a new passport? Uh Uh-oh, massive delays and backlogs at the passport office. Some people waiting months to get a passport. Some desperately sleeping outside the passport office, which, of course, is understaffed. What if you want a Nexus card to speed your travel across the Canada-U.S. border? What if you need to renew your Nexus card. Oh, same story there. 300,000 applications, desperate waiting times and backlogs for a Nexus card as well. Let's discuss with my guest, Gary Mason, columnist at the Globe and Mail. He's been writing about this. Hey, Gary. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. I congratulate you on your column on this one. I know it got a lot of attention in the Globe and Mail on the Passport gong show as you call it at our passport offices gary what's going on there can you describe to listeners what's happening and why it's happening well i mean what's happening is that uh there has been as you well noted uh, a massive demand to travel after people have been locked down for two years uh, this was widely anticipated everybody in the world would have known that you know once you know these restrictions began to be lifted uh, around the world, that there would be a demand to, to travel again. And, uh, but the, well, the one uh, organization that didn't seem to anticipate this was uh, Services Canada and the people that run uh, our passport system, which uh, they seem to have been completely caught off guard by this anticipated demand, which is absolutely absurd that they wouldn't have had a plan in place, Mike, to uh, handle the the massive surge in demand that everybody in the world knew was going to be there. Yeah, and we take a look at the demand for passports. I mean, we're looking at, what, more than a million people trying to get a passport here? Uh, Well, more than a million. But, I mean, uh, here's the thing. They they expect actually 
uh, to receive 4.2 million passport wow. applications this year. Whoa. I know that seems that seems like a lot, and and you know the minister uh, Karina Gold, who is uh, Gould, who is in, in charge of Services Canada, is kind of using this as an excuse. You know, like who could have anticipated this kind of demand? But Mike, if you look at the numbers prior to the pandemic, if you look at the, the previous five years prior to the pandemic, the the number of applications per year averaged anywhere from two point five million to five million. So, you know, 4.2 million isn't isn't out of the ordinary. So they should be able to handle this. And yet they seem to be completely uh, either incompetent or uh, completely disorganized. Uh, and, and, you know, th- there's just no excuse for people having to line up days in advance, get a bloody passport. It's ridiculous. What are you hearing from your readers? I know your column on this got a lot of attention. What kind of stories are you hearing from people who are desperately trying to get that passport? Well, I mean, it's just it's just utter frustration. But I heard from one reader, Mike, who uh, is in the United States. She's a Canadian currently living in the United States. And she needs to get her passport uh, renewed. So she sent in her application and her passport to Services Canada. And it's, she did this in February. And she's still without her passport, and she, she's inquired about what's happened, and they seem to have misplaced her passport. So now she's in the United States without a passport and without any, you know, easy way to get back in the country. They recommended that she drive to Miami, which is like an eight-hour drive for her, and, and get, try and get an emergency passport there. But the point is, it's not just Canadians. There's there's millions of Canadians around the world that need to get passports as well. And yeah. uh, we kind of have forgotten about those people. Right. Speaking to Gary Mason from the Globe and Mail about the passport backlog, same story for anyone looking to get a, a Nexus card to speed travel across the Canada-U.S. border. 300,000 Canadians waiting for a Nexus approval as the backlog is getting worse. And this affects people who, Gary, who are like frequent travelers to the United States, maybe snowbirds, people who live, maybe live in Arizona or Florida or elsewhere in the U.S., frequently coming back and forth to Canada. This has been their, their life for years. And suddenly, you know, they can't get this Nexus card. Same deal. Yeah, well, absolutely. And you know what, Mike? getting a nexus card in and getting nexus your nexus card renewed even before the pandemic was a problem there were delays uh, you know because you're you're you know you need the us government you know approval so i mean there's a, there's another authority involved um so it was a problem before but now you you have people that are looking at the chaos at airports where you know there the, there's hours long line to get through security, and they're thinking, well, I'm going to get a Nexus card so I can skip through security. Um, I mean, that's you, you see people doing that all the time now. You know, like that. If you have a Nexus card, it is like a gold card. You know, especially when you're sure. traveling through airports. So I'm not surprised, but but Mike, the Nexus application process was a problem before the pandemic, and the pandemic uh, and post pandemic surge has only made it worse. What is the plan here? I mean, okay, we can understand there's a staff shortage. That's what the government has been saying. But like you said, they've been warned for a long time. Look, the pent-up demand is coming. The balloon is getting bigger here. you got to be ready for this. I mean, I've spoken to the former uh, chief operating officer at Air Canada about this, the president of the union of the airport security screeners. They say they, they all say, we were told the government, we warned them uh, two years ago, get ready. Get ready for the pent-up demand that is coming at you like a train down the track. And it doesn't seem that they were ready. Is there a plan now to fix this as far as you can see? Well, I mean, uh, Karina Gould was uh, asked in the House of Commons about this whole, yesterday, about this whole mess. And, uh, you know, her response was it just people were just caught off guard. But if there is a plan, Mike, it certainly wasn't articulated by her. And, you know, another factor that we have to, you know, also take into account here, you know, there are hundreds of people in Service Canada that are off the job because they refuse to get vaccinated. So, I mean, there's another factor that has complicated this whole thing. And, you know, during the first year of the pandemic and even the beginning of the second year of the pandemic, I mean, there weren't there wasn't that much demand early on for passport renewals. I mean, what were these people doing? They could have come up with a comprehensive plan early on to, 
you know, deal with the surge that we're seeing now. But it seems like nothing was done. And that is the maddening thing about this. It just seems like there was no plan in place. Nobody has articulated a plan and nobody has articulated a way to get out of this thing. It just seems like it's just going to be, I mean, they've hired 600 more people, additional staff. They brought in staff from other departments to kind of help out. I mean, I think eventually this problem is going to be solved, but there's going to be a lot of pain and agony and uh, pissed off people in the meantime. Yeah, and I find it extraordinary that they would have the nerve to say that this was a surprise or we didn't see it coming when, I mean, it was, it should have been clear to everyone. And as you, as you described it in the pages of the Globe and Mail, you call it inexcusable, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I said, you know, that this deserves to be in the Hall of Fame of government incompetence. I mean, it, yeah. it's one of the most gross displays of incompetence that we've seen from the federal government or federal, federal government department in quite some time, Mike. Okay, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Okay, my pleasure, Mike. Uh, All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the gong show at Canadian passport offices. The Nexus system is a mess, too. Lots of calls on this. Naomi in Abbotsford. Hi, Naomi. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Um, Yeah, I wanted to respond. You wanted to know how long it took to get a passport. I applied for my daughter's passport uh, March the 9th. I FedExed it there, paid a lot of money, and um, I got it eight weeks later, so... Even though they say 25 business days, I don't know what they're saying now, but it was certainly more than that. Um, the most frustrating part was trying to get the status update of the passport, and I filled it out online to get a status update, never received any response. I called them multiple times. You can't even be put on hold. Like, no one ever responded to me. So Yeah. Like, what happens, when you, what happens when you call? Can you actually even get through on the phone line? One time I got through and I was 200 on hold, it said, and finally it started ringing and then it put me through to some numbered voicemail and I never received a call back. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Naomi, for that. Let's go to Brittany on the line, also in Abbotsford. Hi, Brittany. Hi there. Yeah, I just find it really ironic that they're trying to hire 600 people when they have 300 off right now for not getting the vaccine. And if it's about the pandemic, they have hundreds of people packed in those rooms. I mean, where's the safety protocols there? <laughs> it's just yeah. so backwards. Yeah, thank you for that. No, and Gary Mason also mentioned that as a, as a factor too. And I think we're reaching a point now where those federal vaccine mandates, uh, maybe time to give them another, uh, give them a review, give them another look. I mean, I've talked to Bonnie Henry about these rules and she doesn't seem to show any willingness to back down on a vaccine mandate for working in a long-term care facility, which I think is a lot more understandable than someone who works in a passport office. Ross in Maple Ridge. Hi, Ross. What do you think? Well, it seems to be kind of blindness on the part of governments, both north and south of the border, that nobody could see post-pandemic that there was going to be this huge travel desire we have yeah. grandchildren that we've been planning since last October. That's like in 2021. They applied for a renewal to their passport. We have not heard back from anybody. Our daughter lives in San Diego. She's frustrated. We're frustrated. We can't make plans. It's just incredible. Both sides of the border are blind to this. Wow. So how long have they been trying to get a passport now? October of 2021. Whoa, October. Oh, man. October. You got to be kidding me. No, sir. Crazy. Uh, and our daughter applied right away. She's actually driven from San Diego up to Los Angeles, thinking maybe it was a problem. They are American citizens. They had a passport. She just wants to renew them. And yeah. nothing's happening. But is she trying to get an American passport or a Canadian passport? Well, no, they are American citizens. The two, yeah. the two grandchildren. So they had already did have an American passport, and it's just a renewal. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that, Ross. Keep calling me on this six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight. If you've been trying to get a passport, if you've been trying to get a Nexus card, how long have you been waiting? What kind of impact has it had on you and your plans? Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight. Toll free in your cell. Heather on the line of White Rock. Hi, Heather. Hey, Mike. I was just calling to let you know, I submitted an application or a renewal for my Nexus. It'll be June 
coming up to a year this June. A year? So, like wow. next month, yeah. yeah. I live in White Rock. I used to go get gas, um, so I don't do that anymore. I have a trip planned. I'm kind of worried. I called them, um, sent them an email. They told me the, uh, the new wait time is 12 months. Well, 10 to 12 months, and that was probably two months ago. So, you know, I'm coming up to 12 months now, and I'm not hopeful. Yeah, and is this this is an application to renew your card? Well, mine had expired by 30 days, but um, but I'd had it previously for for years. Yeah, and is it is it helpful for you when you do have it? Uh, yo, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and so, and the the process for getting one, like you have to go, you have to go through like an interview process, like a sit down interview with someone. You do, and actually, yeah. I had to renew for the rest of my family, and um, I was lucky enough to actually. After multiple tries, I did get a, an appointment for my son. I don't know how I'm going to get over there. Well, I have my passport still, but um, to renew for him. But um, hopefully I can get across to be there as the parent for his, his uh, Nexus uh, interview. Thank you, Heather. Heather in White Rock waiting a year for her Nexus. Arliss in Coquitlam. Hi, Arliss. Go ahead. I reapplied for my Nexus renewal a year ago, almost to the day. And I still haven't even had an approval uh, being made of my my uh, Nexus. To complicate it, I can only access it by using access codes. And I'm running out of access codes to be able to even <laughs> check the progress. You oh, can't get man. through by phone. You can't. There, I, I've emailed and only received notices saying that it could be 12 to 14 months while well, I'm kind of past that now. I, I know that they say that, that you can extend for up to 24 months after the the expiry date, but yeah. I can't get through to anyone. And, and we have a trip that we had to put off because of COVID that we're running out of time to use our air, our air, uh, Air so miles, certificates, air, their certificates, the refund certificates. Oh yeah, okay, Arliss, and thank you, thank you for sharing that. Wow, I, well, patience is a virtue. What else can I tell you, Ernie and Surrey? Ernie, you got thirty seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, well, my wife and I both applied for our Nexus cards last November. She received hers within three weeks, and I'm still waiting. Uh, if you ever can get through to these guys, they just tell you pending. Pending, you know, yeah. Well, <laughs> pending. Yeah, pen- that, everything's pending. I everything's said, well, pending. Yeah, my trip is now pending, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get an update now on a story we told you about in an earlier show. BC's proposed new food guidelines in public schools. No more pizza days in school. My kids loved pizza days. My wife and I loved it too. We didn't have to make a lunch those days. Pizza on the hit list. In these proposed guidelines, <laughs> what else is on the bad food list here? Cookies, cupcakes, ice cream. What about school bake sales? Would those be banned now? A lot of parents worried about that. French fries on the hit list. Oh, I lived on cafeteria French fries in high, in high school. Do these guidelines go too far? Is this the nanny state gone wild here? What about school pizza days and bake sales? Let's discuss now with my guest, Corinne Kirkpatrick, Liberal MLA. She is the official opposition education critic in the B.C. legislature, and I'm pleased to welcome her. Corinne, thank you very much for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Very happy to be here. Okay. Do these guidelines go too far? Yeah, I think they go too far, and I think parents would agree, or I know parents would agree that they go too far. But what what the government has done is they've taken what used to be um, the food guide, and they just applied it to the food that was actually served and sold within the school. Now they've extended that to any uh, food. If you're bringing your cupcakes in to your grade three class birthday party, can't do that anymore. You're going to have to give those kids broccolis and carrot sticks instead so they can celebrate. What kind of kid is going to celebrate with broccoli and carrot sticks? I don't know many. I don't know <laughs> Not many. Not many. No. I don't know many. No, I don't um, think so. A lot of, I've heard from a lot of parents on this and on this issue. You've, you've heard probably from way more. And one of the things that, that people are concerned about are fundraisers, pizza days. Like pizza days are kind of a tradition in a lot of schools. Would that be allowed or not? Uh, it would not be allowed. No, not a, a pizza is definitely on the hit list in terms of what you can't have. 
Um, uh, I mean, I don't. I I think if you make your pizza crust out of bulgur or quinoa or something, and you put asparagus on the pizza, that might uh, that might do it. But otherwise, no more pizza day, no more hot dogs, no more cupcakes. Uh, and I don't know about what, what if we're selling Girl Guide cookies in the in the school, or if we're doing our fundraisers. Uh, you know, you've got kids every year that are asking you to buy chocolate almonds. Those aren't going to be allowed either. Okay, for a lot of parents who are active at their kids' schools. They rely on fundraisers and pizza days, bake sales are big fundraisers, right? What are you hearing from parents about that? Like, are, the, are those events, those type of events threatened here? Uh, yeah, they are threatened if this is uh, extended uh, to those uh, activities that are happening, you know, outside of the school cafeteria. Um, it, it, it also applies to sporting events if it's, uh, you know, if the school has, uh, has organized something. So it, it really does reach too far and, and parents don't know what they will do or PACs don't know what they will do to actually replace pizza days and hot dog days and those kinds of things. And don't get me wrong, Mike, we want healthy food in schools. We just right. want to have the ability to have some fun sometimes and not create, uh, a relationship with food with kids where there's anxiety, they feel something's bad. That that's not healthy for children, and it's definitely going to hurt the the packs and the ability to raise money. Okay, the government says, of course, this is about keeping kids healthy, making sure they're eat, making healthy choices in what they eat, reducing rates of childhood obesity. I see the Canadian childhood obesity groups that are endorsing this plan, this idea. What about that? Like, what about the argument that look, you know. We, our kids are eating junk food. We've got to replace it with healthy, healthy choices. Well, I mean, we, we can say realistically, well, why don't we have, you know, 70 or 80 or 85% of the food that we're serving in the cafeterias or we're serving in the, in the school come into that healthy category, but we can't take away those other things either. And it's outside of this fundraising. I've spoken to um, a number of parents who've got autistic kids or who have kids that have, you know, different relationships with food or health issues the, these kiddos are not. It's going to cause anxiety. It's going to. It's going to be exclusionary. Um, and why do they have to extend it so far beyond uh, what they've got now, which is the food that is sold by the school to uh, children in the school? Uh, so completely understand the need to have healthy choices. I've always advocated for healthy choices in schools, but it's gone too far, and, it, and yeah. you're, they're extending outside the walls of the school. Speaking to liberal education critic Corinne Kirkpatrick about new food guidelines in schools, I'm just taking a look at the draft guidelines that were issued by the government, and it is quite clear. It says these guidelines would, ap- would apply to lunch sales, fun fairs, sporting events. Like So sporting events, you couldn't get a hot dog at, a, at a, your kid's baseball game or soccer game at a school. Right? Not if it, yeah, not if it's at the school, um, oh. or even if it's not at the school, but it's a it's a school sanctioned event. Uh, Vitamin rich uh, uh, water, um, uh, energy drinks, uh, and you know these aren't things that we want kids eating on a consistent basis. But these are not daily events. These are uh, these are yeah. things that happen infrequently throughout the, the school year. Uh, you know, my my kid uh, <laughs> eats healthy food, and the few chocolate chips and cupcakes that she had uh, in school, they they haven't hurt her. They've helped her develop a healthy relationship with food. And it's about education. We have to make sure that our kids understand what those good choices are, but we can't take the fun choices away from them. Yeah, I noticed too. It says that it, these rules would also apply to. Food and beverage, beverages brought to the school by students to share with other students. For example, classroom celebrations. So you, what, you can't bring a birth, you can't bring a birthday cake if your your teacher's birthday. You can't bring a birthday cake, <laughs> and on. I, you know, I re- I remember when uh, when my daughter was young, and I sent the carrot sticks to the birthday party. I can guarantee you that every carrot stick came back at the end of the day. That, that's not what kids want. And again, uh, it's just occasional and celebratory, and, and it, it just takes the fun away. Yeah. I know it says the guidelines do not apply to foods brought from home for personal consumption. So your bagged lunch that you send to your kids, your ki- you send your kid to school with a, a bagged lunch. Right. So I guess there, yeah. there won't be like a school administrator poking through the kids' lunch bags, making sure there's no banned no, items in there. 
No, they won't have to do that. But I do wonder about uh, how parent or uh, how teachers are going to feel about if your kid does bring those cupcakes in, who's going to police that? And is it going to be the teacher that says, oh, no, sorry, we can't have that today, even though it's Susie's birthday? Uh, well, you're not allowed to share it. I mean, so if a kid brings a cupcake you, in their lunch bag, they, that kid could eat the cupcake, but you couldn't give it to it. They couldn't share it with their, the kid at the next desk, basically, like, probably, right? Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. what these, uh, these outlines say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is guidelines they all... refer, Go they, ahead, they Karen. Refer to fun, they refer to fun fairs. You're not allowed yeah. to bring these things to fun fairs, but isn't the point of it being fun is that you can have these kinds of things. Yeah, it's not much of a fun fair anymore. You, you, you got to get yeah. carrot sticks instead of a hot dog. Yeah, not so, not so fun. Yeah, the guide the guidelines do not apply to food and beverages sold or served only to adults. <laughs> so the teachers can eat what they want, but the kids can't. The teachers, exactly. The teachers yeah. can eat it, but the kids can't. Yeah, or the okay. parents that come in, they can eat it, but the kids can't. What is the status of this? Because the last time I took a close look at this, these were draft guidelines that had been distributed for feedback from parents. Like, has it been implemented now? Is it, or is it still in a like a consultation stage? It's a bit mysterious, and I'm not sure um, how much consultation has actually happened. I've, I've spoken to some of the um, school boards, and there's some confusion about kind of next steps on this. So the document was released. It was released with the word confidential on it, but it was released publicly. Um, it does say it's con- uh, consultative at this point, but um, it, but it's very unclear what's happening. Yeah. Um, I guess the major concern that I've heard from a lot of parents is how this could impact fundraising events like bake sales, fun fairs, as you mentioned, pizza days. And we've already touched on this briefly, but what are your concerns there? Because I know a lot of parent advisory councils you know, they operate on a very tight margin, very tight budget. They don't have a lot of money. They need to raise money. And this is one of the ways they raise money. Well, they, you know, I guess uh, the ministry is presuming that these parent groups are going to have to be creative and come up with some other ways to be able to raise money. But, I mean, you can only have so many bottle drives every year. Uh, and, and these fundraisers, whether they're selling chocolates or baked goods, it's so good for these kids to have the experience of running these, to learn how to sell things. to So it's much broader than just the, the money that they're bringing in, although that's a really important part of it. It's a good overall experience. But, I mean, I'm not creative enough to say what can we replace this with. We can sell Christmas cards. We can sell baskets of fruit. We can, You know, there, there perhaps are other things that these packs can look right. at, but they're not going to be as effective for them, and, and uh, it, it's going to be tough. Last question for you. So you want the government to put the brakes on this, right? Oh, absolutely. I want them to put the brakes on it. But I want I, I just don't want to give the impression that I, you know, I want your uh, cafeteria to be full of fried food. That That's not what we're saying. We're saying healthy choice. I agree. You know, you mentioned your friend. Okay, maybe that's not <laughs> something the cafeteria has to sell. But it, you know, saying that you can't have a, a, a vitamin rich, uh, you know, water from time to time, um, uh, th- that's just going too far. And saying that it applies to outside events and fundraising, that's going too far. Corinne, thank you very much for coming on today. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about the very slow recovery of transit use in Canada now. Public transit ridership plunged during the pandemic because understandably transit numbers are bouncing back. Uh, pandemic restrictions are largely gone. Anxiety about catching COVID-19, I think, has also gone down. So we are seeing transit recover. Let's take a look at the numbers from Statistics Canada. In the month of March, most recent available number, the 12th straight month in Canada with year-over-year growth in urban transit ridership, but total ridership still below pre-pandemic levels. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Professor Lawrence Frank from UBC's School of Population and Public Health. Professor Frank, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm, I'm great. Thanks a lot for doing this. When you take a look at these numbers here, transit ridership in Canada, it's bouncing back, but still not is it any? Is it close to what it was pre-pandemic, or are we still a long way off? 
seems a bit of a ways off still and not surprising yeah. uh, because uh, I think the numbers uh, were were considerably off. People, um, you know, are creature we're creatures of habit, and people have gotten some people have you know they have choice riders, and then uh, captive riders, people that have to yeah. use transit, and the choice riders, um, you know, are still making choices that uh, you know uh, really may not. Um, you know, it may be a while before, uh, you know, the the concern about the pandemic may have ebbed. It has. Uh, but, you know, I know people still, you know, uh, are able to say, well, you know, I'm still not going to risk it because it's still going around. Yeah. Um, so there's still a percentage of people that are making choices that are, when given an option, will choose to um, reduce their risk. Yeah. Uh, and so there's still that. And then there's the uh, behavior shift. Uh, there's three things. The second is the behavior shift and the, and the habits, na- the nature of us. So we get into habits. And so we're in the habit of using transit. Um, that was normal. And so that, that kind of was that, that, um, connection was a little bit lost, um, for many. And so reestablishing a uh, good habits, more sustainable habits, more, um, cost effective, uh, it will take a while to be reinstated for, for some. And then the third is that the transportation system is functioning still a little bit differently than it used to. Um, congestion levels, I haven't looked at the exact numbers, but congestion levels on some of the roads, because a lot of people are, there's still a certain amount of working at home. Yes. Oh. Hello. Okay. Yeah. Hi. I was lo- we lost you for a split second there, but we got you back. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still a number of people that are that are working from home. So yeah. traffic during peak hours may not be quite as bad as it was on certain facilities, bridges, Portman Bridge, and some of the bottlenecks as it was pre-pandemic. I don't know exactly what the levels of congestion are if they've returned to what they were pre-pandemic, but I understood that they were still a little bit lower. So that was the kind of the incentive to use transit in one. So those are three different factors that are all converging uh, and, and to, to make, a, you know, transit use should be expected to be lower than it was pre-pandemic. Right, right. When you take a look at these StatsCan numbers, just taking a fresh look at them now, uh, ridership on public transit in Canada, still only 52% of what it was pre-pandemic so bouncing back but boy the recovery very very slow and you articulated some of the reasons why are some people choosing to drive instead even though we've got these record high gas prices at the same time yes apparently so and some people are not commuting um to work uh, as many days a week even still and so employers learned, as we know, through the pandemic, that it's not necessary to have a workforce uh, in the office uh, every day of the week. So that that's playing a, a factor as well. But I think it's the, 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 the habit, the way that we tend to structure our lives uh, has been uh, that transit focus that people had, commuting uh, on transit, all of that fabric that we built into our lives. Uh, has changed for some people, and reestablishing that um, is going to take some time. But if we're re- well, it has it has certainly not good for transit. But the extent to which the shift is away, if trips are being replaced with uh, instead of moving from transit to car trips, if those trips actually either a aren't happening because people are working from home, uh, that has an environmental fit. Um, and, uh, and if they're, if they're able to be more active getting out and it depends on what's happening instead of the commute on wow. transit that we need to look, we, we still need to learn more uh, about that. And I think you probably have other, another question, which was, what's it going to take for people to get back on transit? I think that's right. your next question. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> what, what would be your answer to that? Um, well, I think the investments that are being made, there's going to be a lag. I think we understand that it's going to take a while not to expect things to return back to normal immediately. We're still, you know, coming out of this pandemic uh, and will be for a little while. So we have to understand that it's not normal yet. It's still happening. 
people are still getting COVID, you know, and it's still affecting our, the indirect effect of COVID is happening. We may not be as worried about the direct effect uh, on individual, you know, as, as an individual getting on the train or not, may, people may not be as worried about that, but it's still affecting our economy. It's affecting the way our world's functioning. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and even to the extent that gas prices are not playing much of a role uh, is, is making that apparent to us that, that we're, we're still uh, under this cloud of this pandemic and, it, and, and the way it's changed our economy and the way we function as a society. And that's just not going to go immediately. Speaking, speaking, to Professor, speaking yep. to Professor Lawrence Frank from UBC about uh, slowly recovering transit numbers, what kind of impact does this have on transit service providers, some of the big transit operations across Canada? They have to be experiencing a, a pretty sharp drop in revenue. Absolutely. Not my area of expertise, how much with the Fairbox recovery, the money but uh, I'm sure that you have plenty of people that can speak directly to that. But yes, it's down. Yeah. And uh, what about for planning for future transit trends here? I mean, there's always demands on improved transit services, but with the, the number of riders still recovering very slowly, could that also slow down the pace of building new transit out, new transit services, do you think? I kind of think of the opposite uh, direction, which is what I was, I was sort of uh, went on a little bit earlier before, but is that I think that the investments that are being made will actually help to, to really build in transit into our future as it needs to be. Um, and Broadway Corridor and other investments ahead, because that's really what makes transit, those investments are going to make transit more competitive it is, it is a healthier, people who use transit are more physically active, have less chronic disease, uh, and it is also essential for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah. we don't really have a, we don't really have a choice. We really have to do it. Yeah. Okay. It's an issue we're following with interest. Thank you very much for coming on today with your analysis. Thank you for inviting me.